It is Tuesday, June 23rd here in Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schaff. With me, as always, is Jared Smola. And we have all of the player profiles written and posted on DraftSharks.com. You can find more than 200 write-ups on the site. Basically an article for every offensive player that is in draft consideration. Also on DraftSharks.com, Jared just posted the 2019 reliability rankings today, tracking who gave us the most starter-worthy performances last season. Jared, any big surprises from compiling that info? The biggest surprise was definitely Golden Tate, who, who you know, I, I don't want to give away too much. I guess we'll give away Golden Tate. He was he had the second highest percentage of fantasy starter weeks, and we define that here as a top 36 half PPR week. Um, he was behind only Michael Thomas. Uh, Tate finished as a top 36 uh, half PPR wide receiver in nine of his 11 games. So, th- you know, there weren't a lot of spike weeks. And again, the, the these reliability rankings, it's more a measure of floor. Tate wasn't giving you a lot of, you know, weak winning performances, but he, he was very steady after he returned from that um, four game suspension to open last season. Yeah. And that's going to be an interesting offense and especially wide receiver group to discuss as we move through our team previews. I, I'm not sure how to sort it yet. And I wonder whether that show is really going to make it a lot clearer. Yeah, I haven't really known what to make of that Giants wide receiver core. I've kind of just been avoiding the group altogether. Tate tends to be the cheapest in fantasy drafts, too. He might be the guy to go after if you're looking for a Giants wide receiver. Yeah, and betting on Tate at cost has generally been a pretty good idea throughout his career. Yeah, definitely. That is a premium article on DraftTracks.com, so you're going to need to be a DS Insider if you want to see the rest of the numbers beyond Golden Tate. You do not need to be a DS Insider to read the 15 free player profiles posted on the site right now. However, Brandon Cooks is the latest. He just got posted today. We will continue to add a few a week going forward, so you'll see a little bit behind the curtain and learn more about these players. Today, we're going to start our annual podcast series previewing every single team in the league from a fantasy standpoint. Position by position, we're going by division, and we're going to hit the AFC East first, opening up with the Buffalo Bills. Jared, any relevant coaching changes to this team? No coaching changes here, which is always nice. Um, Sean McDermott, head coach, back for his fourth year. Brian Dable, the offensive coordinator, back for his third year. So we shouldn't see too much of a change as far as offensive scheme here. Um, Just taking a look at the, the Bills last year, they finished... 16th in the league in offensive plays at 1,018. Um, They were 12th in uh, offensive pace, which is defined as seconds per snap. And then they were 11th in situation neutral pace, which kind of, you know, discards plays where the scoreboard dictates pace. Um, So it was a faster paced offense um, that was up from 2018 when Buffalo finished 20th in in, uh, overall pace and 15th in situation neutral pace. The run pass split in Brian Dable's first two seasons as the Bills OC has been pretty consistent now. Was, they were 54% pass this past year, uh, 53.5% pass the previous year. So you know, those are lower marks. The Bills have ranked 26th in pass attempts in 2018, 24th in pass attempts this past year. They finished 6th in rush attempts in both of Dable's first seasons. So this, you know, I think as people know, especially with Josh Allen under center, has been a run-leaning offense. Yeah, seventh most run-heavy team last year, fifth most run-heavy team the year before that, second most run-heavy the season before that, which was before Dabble, but in Sean McDermott's first season as the head coach, and even the year before Sean McDermott arrived, second most run-heavy team in the league. So, you know, maybe the trade for Stephon Diggs signals that they start 
to shift, a, a, you know, slightly. I don't think any of us is going to expect them to lean right. past. But maybe they throw the ball a little bit more, but this is never going to be a 60-plus percent pass team. Yeah, I think it's a sneaky good wide receiver core now with Diggs joining John Brown, who I think I've always loved. Really, Finally kind of came through, stayed healthy last year. Cole Beasley, a good, good guy in the slot. Um, but I, I think the Bills sort of see what, what Josh Allen is and, are, and have done a good job catering the offense to him, going run heavier, letting him use his legs, but not putting too much on Allen's arm. They did throw the ball a little bit more last year, despite going 10-6. and six. So they were 52% run in their 10 wins, 34% run in their 6 losses. The year before, they were 61% run in 6 wins. That, of course, was Josh Allen's rookie season. So it makes sense for them to give him a little bit uh, more chances in 2019. You know, like I said, again, maybe we'll see a, another slight shift toward giving more pass attempts, even if game script is, you know, working in their favor. They're winning games when you generally see a team run more often, but I don't think that they're going to lean heavily in that way. Let's go to QB notes. You already started talking about Josh Allen. He finished ninth in quarterback fantasy points last year. His scoring has really been driven by his rushing through two seasons. Last season, Josh Allen ranked just 22nd among quarterbacks in passing only total fantasy points and 32nd at the position in passing only points per game. Among quarterbacks, only Cam Newton has run for more touchdowns over his first two seasons than Josh Allen's 17. Only three have more carries in that span. Only three have more rushing yards. Only seven players ran for more touchdowns inside the 10-yard line last season than Josh Allen. That's players at any position, not quarterback. Yeah, I I don't think there's much of a reason to expect Allen's rushing production, at least as far as the you know volume and, and the yardage to drop off. Again, I think that the Bills sort of realize that, that that's a big part of his game, and I don't expect Allen to ever become more than like a league average NFL passer. Um, but again, he he showed even as a rookie, 14th in points per game um, in his 11 starts, and like you said, ninth last year. He can be a fantasy asset without big passing numbers. I think the question with Allen is can he maintain the rushing touchdown production? He had eight rushing scores as a rookie, nine this past year. Those are tough numbers to project to, you know, to, to, to stay at that level. But, it, you know, he, he is tied for second among quarterbacks in, in uh, carries inside the five-yard line over the past two seasons now. Um, he converted all five of his carries inside the five-yard line into touchdowns last year, eight of 11 carries inside the 10 into touchdowns. So, you know, he, he is one of the – most effective goal line runners in the NFL. So you know, it, we're not projecting another eight or nine touchdowns again, but you know, I think five or six is a fair projection for this season, which is still a really nice number for a quarterback. Yeah. I mean, sheer luck is likely to shave a couple of those off, but like you said, five or six is still going to be leading the position or close to the lead of the position. Uh, Josh Allen's only reached 260 passing yards in a game twice so far in his career. He's never cracked 270 yards Eight games of two-plus touchdown passes in his 28 NFL games so far. So as you said, it's he's a runner. He's probably not ever going to be a terrific passer. Picking up Stephon Diggs, obviously nice for him. I don't know that he's going to get efficient enough to really maximize that pickup. So uh, if he loses six rushing touchdowns, then I, I think we see the fantasy production drop way off. But barring a big change there, you know, I think we should be looking at somebody who we – expect perennially to be from the bottom of QB one range to, you know, the top few spots of QB two range. Yeah. The the rushing volume makes him a relatively safe bet. We can talk about his price later on here, whether he's a good value Mm -hmm. in drafts, but um, one final note on Allen, he was more volatile 
than your average quarterback last year. You know, he did finish ninth in total fantasy points. He only had six top 12 quarterback weeks last season. That was tied for 13th at the position. So he was a bit, a bit more up and down than, you know, his final fantasy tally suggests. Certainly makes sense uh, going with his style. Yeah. Running back, Devin Singletary took over the lead job for the Bills in week eight last year. From that point on, 48.2% of the team's carries, 13.1% of targets. That would have ranked 18th at the position in carry share for the full season, ninth in target share among running backs. It would have ranked, you know, as full season numbers. He ranked 29th in the league in in total carries, though, 36th in red zone carries, tied for 45th in carries inside the five, only had two of those, and tied for 76th in share of team carries inside the five. So Devin Singletary broke out. He took over the backfield, but Buffalo never really let him lead things in the red zone. And I think it's more than just an issue of losing stuff to Josh Allen. Yeah, I mean, Singletary is 203 pounds. So he's undersized. I don't think he ever projected as like a, a excellent goal line back as a pro. Um, now, of course, the Bills added Zach Moss to the backfield too, who, you know, could kind of just slide into the Frank Gore role, but, you know, Moss could also vulture some goal line carries from Devin Singletary. I think, you know, we saw the the ceiling, I think, on Singletary's usage, as you mentioned, um, in that final stretch over the final nine games of last season, including the playoffs. He averaged 16 carries and four targets per game. So, you know, 20 opportunities per game, that's a nice number. And again, I think that's the ceiling if, like, Zach Moss proves unready. Um, and if Singletary gets that type of work, you know, he, he's, he's going to be at least an RB2, even without the touchdown production. But the concern for me is that, Zach Moss turns this backfield into something closer to what we saw over the first half of the season when Frank Gore was, you know, getting 10 to 12 carries per game. Yeah, I think Zach Moss was a worrisome pick for Devin Singletary. Not only is he 20 pounds larger and a better bet to get that goal line stuff than Singletary is. Zach Moss also caught more passes in college than Singletary, 66 to 51. He averaged 10.4 yards per catch versus Singletary's 7.8. They both were effective three-down backs in college. They both rated top shelf in pro football focuses, elusive ratings. So, and then they both disappointed with their 40 times at the combine. So they come into the league very similar. Zach Moss dealt with several injuries in college. The, the knee was the biggest one, required surgery in 2018. But I think that the range of possible outcomes this season includes Zach Moss outscoring Devin Singletary, even if both players are healthy. I won't say it's impossible. I, I, I think Singletary is a pretty good bet to hang on to the, the pass catching role. Um, you know, we'll see how that shakes out in training camp. Frank Gore didn't do much in the passing game last season. He averaged just about a, a half a target per game over the final nine weeks when Singletary took over. Even over the first month of the season when it was, you know, closer to a 50-50 split, Frank Gore only averaged 0.8 targets per game over that span. So we'll, we'll see. Um, I, I think Moss is a guy who's probably going to have more value in non-PPR leagues. I, again, I do think there's a pretty good chance he takes over as the primary goal linebacker for the Bills this season. I do also think that Moss is a better receiver right now than late career Frank Gore is. Yeah, that, that's fair. Although, you know, coaches love that pass blocking from Frank Gore. So we'll see how Moss does in that area. Yeah, his receiving, though, fell off even before he was a Bill. Back at, dating back at least to, to Indy, he was seeing his receptions drop. Yep. So Devin Singletary, RB22 and ADP, mid-round four right now. Just running back 18 and non-PPR last season from week eight on. RB19 and PPR scoring from week eight on. Again, that's the range at which Devin Singletary took over the backfield and was leading things. So he's being drafted pretty close to where he finished last season, just in the portion of the season where he was leading that backfield. 
Yeah, I, I have no interest in Singletary where he's going in drafts right now. Pass catcher notes, John Brown finally had the season we were hoping for in 2019. Set career highs in targets, catches, and yards. Fell just short of his own top mark in fantasy points per game. Finished wide receiver 22 in PPR. And he was steady from week to week, which is not the type of player, you know, we, we tend to think of John Brown. We tend to think of him being more of the sp- splash play guy. But he was consistent last year, um, 10 Top 36 half PPR wide receiver weeks. Um, only nine receivers had more than that. So he, he was steady. Um, like you said, got the significant target share. It was efficient. Um, he was 22nd in yards per route run among 79 wide receivers with 50 plus targets last season. So, you know, I, I think I think we've always thought he was a good player. He had some of the health issues, but finally put those behind him and took advantage of being the number one wide receiver in Buffalo, which unfortunately he's probably not going to be in 2020. 22nd in yards per run, as you said, 22nd in PPR points, as I said, 22nd among wide receivers and targets. So it sounds like he was <laughs> basically doing exactly what he should have been doing for the volume he was getting. And, you know, as you said, it, it was surprising consistency and efficiency from John Brown plus Josh Allen, neither of whom we would have bet on efficiency from heading into the season. Yeah, 9.2 yards per target for John Brown. Um, just uh, an awesome number, especially considering he's playing with a you know less accurate quarterback. Cole Beasley is the other main incumbent in the wide receiver core, 27th among wide receivers and targets last year, 34th in PPR points at the end of the season, nine, just nine targets behind John Brown's team lead, 56 targets ahead of number three, Dawson Knox. So that's the big issue for Cole Beasley is that the volume is going to be a lot different this year, and he's a volume-driven player, 11.6 yards per catch last year, and even that number marked a career high for him. He also scored a career high six touchdowns last season, um, a 9% touchdown rate after just a 7% touchdown rate over his first seven NFL seasons. So probably was in for some regression anyways, but the, the bigger concern for Beasley is that, you know, Stephon Diggs' targets have to come from somewhere, and at least a chunk from are going are to come from Cole Beasley. Beasley, though, he, he was, a, I think, a, a big-time value pick, like super late in best ball drafts last year. He's su- still going super late right now, and he, he's a guy who's not going to give you any of those, you know, high-ceiling weeks, but um, you know, he, he can, I think, give you some – 12 to 15 point PPR routing still this season that that can still help, especially when you can get him in like the 20th round of best ball drafts. Yeah. If you're filling out the bottom of a, a wide receiver core in a best ball draft and you don't have to decide to start Cole Beasley, I think that is absolutely where it makes sense. He's been pretty efficient near the goal line, you know, beyond last season. He has scored three or more times from inside the 10-yard line in four of the past five seasons. That, of course, dates back to his time in Dallas, uh, according to Pro Football Reference. So he, he scores some touchdowns here or there. And any week where Beasley scores a touchdown, he's a candidate to fill one of those uh, at least four slots, you know, if you're starting three wideouts and have the flex. Isaiah McKenzie, by the way, was third among Bill's wideouts in targets last year at just 39. So that shows you just how much Stefan Diggs could siphon away from last year's top two. Right. Massive upgrade, you know, for Diggs, for the targets he's replacing um, in in Buffalo. So with Diggs, I mean, I think the the question is just how much volume he can see. And we do have him projected to lead the Bills in targets this season. I think he's a good bet to do so. We basically have Diggs projected for the volume that John Brown got last year, 22% target share, 115 targets. Brown, you know, Brown turned that into a wide receiver 22 finish, but again, Brown was super efficient on those targets, you know, 9.2 yards per target. That's a mark Stefan Diggs has hit in just one of his five NFL seasons. So it's tough to project that level of efficiency. That's why Diggs comes in as more of a wide receiver three in our rankings on those 115 targets. Diggs has been an efficient receiver. He finished 21st 
among wideouts in PPR points last year, despite ranking just 34th in targets at the position. Uh, 11th in PPR in 2018, 19th in PPR in 2017. In 2017, that 19th ranking came despite ranking 33rd in targets as well. So he hasn't consistently outperformed his level of target volume, but there is that potential to him. He is that kind of player. It would certainly help if he had a more efficient quarterback though. And that's kind of the worry here for me. Yeah. And we've talked about that on previous podcasts. I think, you know, Kirk Cousins deserves at least some credit for how efficient Diggs has been. Um, I, I expect him with a less accurate quarterback and just a new quarterback and a new offense, I think um, it's it's a smart bet to expect Diggs's efficiency to to come down at least a little bit in his first year with the Bills. Dawson Knox is the last pass catcher I think that's worth mentioning here. Thirty second in PPR points at tight end last year uh, as a rookie. Forty fourth at the position in PPR points per game. You know we talked about volume already. You can say what you want about Dawson Knox. It was a solid rookie season, especially considering it was just a third round pick, but there's just not enough here for me to really care about him in most fantasy formats this season. Right. I mean, yeah, Knox would have been more intriguing had Diggs not arrived, but you know, now to me, he's just like a tight end three target in uh, these FFPC best ball drafts. So who do you like in Buffalo? Zach Moss is like the only guy I'm really, I really have been drafting so far, you know, at RB 46. I think you, you know, you, you talked about there is, you know, some possibility that he, leads the, the backfield in fantasy points this season. I agree. I think in the drafts that I've gone light at running back up top, Zach Moss has been a guy I've been targeting, you know, in like the 10th, 11th, 12th round range. Yeah, I think he is an, an ideal zero RB type in that he should give you some production even when Singletary's on the field. And then there's obviously handcuff type upside if Devin Singletary goes down. And Zach Moss has, has, was just a good player in college on his own. So he's a not a difficult guy to bet on in that yep. range. I agree he's the only person here that really classifies as somebody that I like on the who I don't like side. Basically all of the wide receivers. Now, Stephon Diggs is going wide receiver 25 in, in June ADP and best ball 10s. That's a down slightly from where he was in May. And I can't say that I hate Stephon Diggs at wide receiver 25. I just don't think that there's a whole lot of ceiling beyond that without somebody else getting hurt. Right. Yeah. Wide receiver 25 is not crazy. You're just looking at ADP though. Devontae Parker, Tyler Boyd, Marquise Brown, even going behind Stephon Diggs. I'd rather have those three guys. So Diggs is just not someone I've been drafting. I have taken John Brown a few times because he's like in the mid forties, I think among wide receivers in ADP. And again, his, his volume is going to decrease, but I don't think it's going to, you know, totally get crushed by Stefan Diggs. I think Brown could still, you know, approach a hundred targets this season. So I think he, he's a potential value if he does get into the, you know, forties among wide receivers. Yeah. I'm not going to tell anybody don't take John Brown at wide receiver 44. I'm not going to tell anybody don't take Cole Beasley at wide receiver 75, yeah. but all three of these guys, they just come up in a spot where there are other people that I like more, whether I'm looking for weekly upside or more sustainable production. I just, there's somebody that I like better than the number two receiver with Josh Allen. Yep. That, that's fair. And then um, we, we talked about Devin Singletary too. I think we're both avoiding him for the most part at his running back 22 ADP. It just, it, it does feel close to his ceiling. You know, I think he, he'd need to get lucky to have a big touchdown season. I don't think he has like 240, 250 carry upside even 
um, considering his size, considering um, Zach Moss and Josh Allen's presence. So I, I think Singletary, I'd be surprised if he finishes much higher than his current ADP. Yeah, and I think even the other guys around him currently have more week-to-week upside. Thinking players such as Chris Carson, James Conner, I think those guys yeah. are the ones who could give you two touchdown games. And really, even if they're not giving you the biggest numbers season-long, they're giving you big week-to-week upside. Yep, definitely. Dolphins up next, Jared. Any relevant coaching changes here to talk about? Yeah, Chan Gailey, um, 68-year-old Chan Gailey, coaxed out of retirement. Um, he's, he's been out of the league the past two seasons now. But he, Gailey does have 14 years of experience as an NFL head coach or offensive coordinator. So lots of history to lean on here. I sort of focused on Gailey's five most recent seasons. Um, that was 2010 to 2012 in Buffalo, and then 2015 and 2016 with the Jets. I think those are interesting too, because Ryan Fitzpatrick started all but eight of those 80 games across those five seasons. Of course, Gailey reunited with Fitzpatrick in Miami. Gailey's offenses, bad news is they've been on the lower volume side. Gailey's ranks in total plays in those last five seasons, 27th, 26th, 27th. He was sixth in 2015 with the Jets, but then back to 24th in 2016 so not a ton of play volume there his ranks in total yards 25th 14th 19th 10th and 26th so you know not nothing to write home about there um then his ranks in pass rate he's been he's he's fluctuated back and forth between you know um run heavy or pass heavy but i think he leans more towards the run heavy side at least in these last five seasons um gailey's ranks in pass rate have been 13th and seventh in his first two years with the Bills, but then 23rd in 2012, 20th in 2015, and 21st in 2016. Gailey's interesting in that he's been around forever. He's worked with Ryan Fitzpatrick. The question, of course, which we'll get to, is how good the talent is here and how yep. whether it's all worth uh, going after. It was the league's second most pass-heavy off- offense last year before Chan Gailey arrived. It, it stayed pass-heavy even after they started winning games. I, I think you can probably blame a near total lack of running backs over the yeah. second half of the season at the very least. And really for the most part over the entire season for the team continuing to lean past and they've addressed that. Yeah. And Ryan Fitzpatrick, he's, he's out there to sling the ball around. He's not looking to hand it off. So QB notes will go to Ryan Fitzpatrick pro football focus graded him 14th in passing among qualifiers last year. And from week seven on, he ranked sixth among all quarterbacks in fantasy points per game. Obviously, Got a competition coming up with Tuo Tangavailoa, but if Ryan Fitzpatrick stays at the helm, he's pretty interesting. He is. Tua, obviously, the more exciting long-term prospect. Might even might even be more talented at this point, but I think Fitzpatrick would be the, the more exciting fantasy option if he does win the week one job. Just the, the way he plays, you know, he is that gunslinger. He showed last year that despite his age, he can still add some production on the ground. Um, and, and Fitz, he, he was, you know, he wasn't, awesome but he was at least fantasy relevant in four of those five seasons with Chan Gailey Um, he finished 10th among quarterbacks in fantasy points per game in 2010 in Buffalo he was 17th in 2011 20th in 2012 and then 17th in 2015 um, with the Jets. Tangavailoa of course arrived as a fifth overall pick according to his agent he is quote physically all ready to go uh, I think that this socially distanced offseason is not going to help him. You know, even if he's physically ready, he hasn't had a chance yet to work with any Dolphins pass catchers. Who knows exactly what Zoom meetings to go through the playbook. Some of the coaches ha- have talked that up and giving them more of a chance to teach. 
We'll see, though, what that means once things actually get to camp. We'll watch this competition this summer, assuming we do get a training camp. And like I said, if Ryan Fitzpatrick stays at the helm and opens the season as the starter, I think that he is an intriguing fantasy quarterback. I'm not taking either guy at the moment in best ball because I don't know what Miami wants to happen. Right. I mean, I think that this is a spot where if you wait super late on your, you know, second slash third quarterback, you, you could consider taking Fitz and Tua and just, you know, getting all, all those starts. It's not something I've been doing. I do think it's more of a, a spot where once we get a week one starter, then maybe even in lineup setting leagues, Fitzpatrick becomes someone you could, you could take late if he does win the starting job again. I, I do think that Fitzpatrick would be better as a standalone fantasy asset. And, and I think he'd be better for this offense. Just I think his aggressive mentality, you know, he has the NFL experience. I think it, it'd be an easier offense to bet on early if it's Fitz under center. And I don't think this offense is going to the playoffs anyway, so it would be good for to make sure that Tua's all good, all healthy. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I expect Fitzpatrick to be under center week one just with Tua's injury and, and the fact that it just it's this um, you know COVID-impacted offseason. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'd also expect Tua to get under center at some point this season. Just Miami can start to you know see what they have with him. Yeah, I'll let some other drafter handle them. I'll take uh, Justin Herbert as my quarterback three late in the draft if I'm taking one. That works. Running back notes, football outsiders rated this offensive line last in the league and adjusted line yards in 2019. Then, then they made a lot of changes to the unit. They uh, drafted Austin Jackson in the first round. I'm sure they want him to start at left tackle. They took Robert Hunt in round two, likely looking for him to start at right tackle. They signed Ted Karras to play center. They signed Eric Flowers to play guard. So they're trying to make it better. Yeah. Better talent at offensive line does not always necessarily mean significantly better performance though yeah i mean they, they added guys I, i'm not sure i mean i guess it can't it can't be worse than last year's unit so that's a good thing and you know, i think there is at least some upside for it to take a significant step forward i'm not expecting this to be you know anything more than like a below average o-line even i don't even think it's going to get to league average this season so that hurts the running backs jordan howard and matt breda though they're, they're both cheap enough in drafts where i think they're both options but um going back to chan gailey he has favored a committee backfield and I think Miami's obviously set up to be a committee backfield this season with Howard and Breda. Um, if you look at Gailey's last five offenses again, in four of those five years, two running backs averaged nine plus total touches per game. Um, and only two of the five seasons did the same running back lead the team in carries and catches. So he has tended to deploy, you know, a, a lead ball carrier and a lead pass catching back. I sort of think that's what Miami's going to look like this season with Howard likely leading the way in carries and Breda being the primary pass catching back. Yeah, this seems reminiscent of the Chris Ivory Bilal Powell pairing for Chan Gailey's Jets. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. Gailey has targeted his running backs a pretty good amount, though, those last five seasons. It was 84 targets to the running backs in the first year in Buffalo, but then it was 104 the next year, 99, and then 100 and 117 in his two years with the Jets. So those are pretty nice numbers. Um, again, I don't think Howard is going to take too much of those, just looking at his you know lack of pass-catching experience. So I, I do, do think Breda has a pretty nice pass-catching upside in Miami this season. Yeah, I've got some more on the receiving upside down in the a later section for this team. Brian Flores talked about Matt Breida as explosive, talked about his vision, talked about him being tough and smart. Five yards per carry so far in his career for Breida, 8.4 yards per catch. Hasn't rated particularly well in elusive rating, according to PFF, though, and unspectacular in yards per route run. So a good running back hasn't been super efficient in those metrics 
and Jordan Howard and Matt Breed have actually been very similar in elusive rating. Howard was 12th in non-PPR, 15th in PPR through week nine last season. That was his healthy portion of the season with the Eagles. I think he benefited greatly from being in a good Eagles offense at that point. But yeah. I mean, overall, Jordan Howard has been productive in the NFL more often than he hasn't been. Right. And, and like wherever he goes, you know, whether it's been Philly or Chicago, he just he earns volume on the ground, which I think I think is noteworthy. And I I was surprised when Howard got his deal from Miami. And I was surprised again when I went back and, and looked at what he got. It was a two year, nine point seven five million dollar deal. That that's a good contract for running backs in this day and age. Um Howard's actually the fourteenth highest paid running back in terms of average annual salary. So again, that contract and just the fact that Howard has the size and the experience, you know, being a lead back in the NFL uh, makes me lean towards him leading this team, at least in carries this season, even though Breda is like the more exciting player. I do think it's going to end up being Howard finishing uh, with the most carries this season. Yeah, they clearly want him to do something. They then didn't draft a running back other than Malcolm Perry, who was a quarterback in college. So it's going to be Breda and Howard at the front of this backfield. For fantasy purposes, I think Howard's game relies more on overall offensive success though than Breida's does. That's the other factor that makes me lean more toward Breida and they're right next to each other in ADP so far. So you really are choosing between them unless you're just drafting both of them uh, by taking one ahead of ADP. Uh, Jordan Howard's RB42 in June best ball 10 drafting. Breida's RB43. Both of those guys going early to mid round nine. So I think they both make plenty of sense where they're going. Yeah. And it kind of feels gross to like use two picks on Dolphins running backs. But at those prices, I, I don't think it's a bad idea to take both of them. Um, and it could be a case where you're getting, you know, top 24 numbers out of one of the two guys every week, you know, whether it's, you know, a week where Miami is playing with a lead or Howard does punch in a touchdown or two, he's going to start for you. And if, if Miami's playing from behind, you're going to get a you know handful of catches from Matt Breda. So I think at, at those prices, it might make sense to, to take both those guys. I don't have a problem with taking them in round eight, round nine to yep. lock that up. On to the pass catchers. Why don't you tell me a little bit about Devontae Parker? I think the most interesting thing about Chan Gailey's history is just how wide receiver centric his offenses have been. Um, so it, if we look at over the past three years in the NFL, the, the league wide average target share for teams wide receivers is 58%. Gailey's last five offenses have been 74% of targets to wide receivers, 67%. 60%. So that was his low mark, but it was still above NFL average. And then 75% and 72%. And I think if you look at his, his personnel stuff too, he gets, he uses a lot of three and four wide receiver sets. So it's a very wide receiver friendly offense. That's why I am sort of, I think higher, even than our rankings, I think um, definitely higher than ADP on Devonte Parker. First of all, he was awesome last year, both in terms of raw production and the efficiency stuff. Um, he finished 11th among wide receivers in PPR points. He was sixth in non-PPR. He was super consistent from week to week, 12 top 36 half PPR weeks for Parker last year. That was tied with Julio Jones and Kenny Galladay for second most among all wide receivers behind only Michael Thomas. Parker finished 25th among receivers in yards per route run. He was 17th in pro football focuses receiving grades. So again, he, he did benefit from volume, but he was also um, efficient with that volume. The Preston Williams injury, I think, is 
the most common knock against Devontae Parker this season. Parker's volume definitely got a boost when Preston Williams went down with his ACL injury. Parker averaged six and a half targets per game over the first eight games of the season with Williams. That jumped to 9.5 targets over the final eight games. So I think that that's the concern. We'll see about Preston Williams and that rehab from the ACL, ACL injury. I think it's also worth noting, though, that Miami gave Parker a four-year, $40 million extension this past December. So you know that, that was them sort of committing to him as their number one wide receiver. So I think Parker is going to be that top guy. And then you look at what Gailey's number one wide receivers have done in his past five seasons now. The, the target shares have been 23%, 29%, 29%, 23%, and 27%. Those are all, you know, big numbers, especially once you, once you get about 23%. Those guys finished 49th in PPR points. So no good there. That was Brandon Marshall in 2016 with the Jets. But then Marshall finished third in 2015. And then Stevie Johnson in his three years with Shane Gailey and Buffalo finished 18th, 16th, and 10th among wide receivers in PPR points. So Gailey has fed his number one wide receivers big volume. And for the most part, you know, they've produced as either wide receiver ones or higher end wide receiver twos. Yeah, so I mean, it's a fact worth acknowledging that Parker's target share rose after Preston Williams went down. It was 18.3% before Williams went down. Williams edged him in targets over that span. It was 23% after Williams got hurt. Uh, And that includes one game that, that Parker left early. Now, does that mean that we need to knock it back down when Preston Williams is back? No. I mean, one guy is an undrafted free agent from last year who impressed right away Mm -hmm. and looks like he's going to be pretty good. The other guy broke out in his fifth season. He's heading into his age 27 season. And as you mentioned, he got a good size extension in December. So clearly the team believes that the breakout was for real, wanted to keep him around despite the issues in Parker's past. So I think betting that it was more than just um, an outlier in the second half of last season is the way to go. As you mentioned as well, ADP makes it easier to bet on Parker. He's wide receiver 26. He's going the end of round five in June drafting. I like him plenty in that range. There are other guys to like down there, but I will certainly take some Devonte Parker if we're just betting on him toward the bottom of wide receiver two range. Last year, he ended up finishing top 11 across fantasy formats. So I don't think that you can say he doesn't have upside into that range this season. And I get why people don't want to buy in because, you know, he he mostly disappointed for his first four seasons. But, I mean, the guy always had the talent. You know, he, he was a first-round pick. He has the size, has the athleticism, ha- had a nice career at Louisville. And, you know, he was, one, dealing with a bunch of injuries those first four years. And he was on bad Dolphins teams. You know, I think there were some excuses. I'm, I'm buying into last year's breakout. I think it was legit. And again, I think this Gailey offense should be good news for Parker. Yeah, I'll take some Damante Parker down there. I'm not saying that you need to take him every time down there because he's also going in the same range as guys like T.Y. Hilton, Marquise Brown, both of the Bengals, A.J. Green and Tyler Boyd, D.J. Chark, Tyler Lockett are just ahead of him in ADP. Yeah. So it's a fairly crowded range. I would not take Parker every time among those guys, but I think he certainly has upside from that range. Yep, that's fair. Preston Williams, impressive debut, as we mentioned. He's coming off an ACL tear, however, has the new OC that we have referenced, has the uncertain QB situation that we have referenced. Preston Williams ranked wide receiver 46 in PPR points per game last season. He's now going wide receiver 53 in best ball 10s ADP for June. So, I mean, I'll be watching Preston Williams this summer, but I'm going to let someone else draft him. Oh, really? I'm more interested in him. And it's another case where there's other guys in that range. Like, you know, I think Sammy Watkins, Deshaun Jackson are in that range, but I'm definitely 
wanting to get some shares of Preston Williams. You know, I, I thought he was impressive over the first half of last season, and he did go and draft it, but that was, I think, largely because of off-field stuff. Um, you know, he has the size. He's 6'5", 218 pounds. He put up a huge season in his lone year at Colorado State. Um, the ACL is obviously a concern, especially considering it happened in November. So you know, I think he's not a lock to be ready for week one. But if he starts trending that way, especially in August, I think I'll be more interested. Again, in Gailey's offense, I think there's room for, you know, say Devontae Parker to get a 24% target share. But then Preston Williams to also, you know, flirt with 20% of the targets, which would be enough to, you know, get him into wide receiver three range. Yeah. I mean, I can't say don't take him down there, but it's tough for me to advocate for him in the, in a similar range to Deshaun Jackson, yep. well ahead of Tyrell Williams, uh, with Brashad Perriman going behind him. So I, for me, I'd rather take somebody who's not coming off such an injury, you know, with potential question marks around them. Yeah, definitely riskier than those other guys you mentioned. I think his ceiling might be higher, though. Possibly. Mike Jasucki is the last uh, <laughs> pass catcher. Well, I'll make mention of one more, but we'll hit Mike Jasucki next. Jumped from a 10.9% target share with Preston Williams in the lineup last year to 17.5% after Williams' injury, so a much bigger boost than what Devontae Parker got. Uh, you know, I've already given the knock against Jasucki Case, but I'll give the shortened version right now. Tied for 7th at the position in targets. He ranked just 15th in yards per game, 50th in catch rate among 54 tight ends with at least 20 targets last year. I'll be curious to see this summer what Chan Gailey thinks of him if he views him as a tall slot receiver like the playing time suggested last year with the previous OC. But Gailey, because Gailey's offense has not been friendly to tight ends overall. Right. That, that's the sticking point with Gusecki for me. You know, we, we talked about how wide receiver friendly Gailey's offense is. It obviously means you know, it hasn't targeted tight ends much. So the NFL average for tight end target share over the past three seasons, 21%. Gailey's last five offenses, 5%. 9%, 18%, but then 4% and 5%. Those are crazy low numbers. Now, his tight ends over that span, Jonathan Stupar, Scott Chandler, Jeff Cumberland, Austin Zafarian Jenkins, and Brandon Bostic. So he, he wasn't working with much. I think I think you, Matt, might even be able to admit that Gusecki is better than those guys. Um, but I, I do think it's going to come down to whether Gusecki, you know plays more of a traditional tight end role or if he's used more as a wide receiver. Um, if you if he's used as a wide receiver, then you could you know see him competing. I think with Preston Williams to finish second on this team in targets. Yeah. So for what it's worth, on the Chan Gailey front, when he was in Kansas City back in 2008, before the other runs we've talked about, he had Tony Gonzalez in his final Chiefs season and went 30. percent I think was the target share for Chiefs tight ends there. So it's not like he's vehemently opposed to throwing the ball to tight ends. And as you mentioned, he had some crappy ones with the um, Jets and uh, Bills teams. But the argument for Jaseki supporters here is saying, well, that's fine because he's not a tight end. He's a slot receiver. The problem is he has yet to live up to his physical traits. He does not play like he's a tall, physically gifted player. He plays like somebody who's not that good at football and probably should have pursued volleyball instead. We'll talk about him versus ADP again, which we already did on a previous show. Albert Wilson, I will mention real quick. I think Albert Wilson's worth a look late in a 28-round FFPC best ball draft. I don't have a whole lot more to say about him than that, though. Yeah, you, again, you're basically betting on the fact that Gailey has targeted his wide receivers so much. So, you know, even the third wide receiver could, you know, pull down like 80 to 90 targets this season. I'm not sure if it's going to be Albert Wilson or Alan Hearns, though, which that that's kind of why I've been avoiding 
those guys because I'm not sure who it's going to be yet. One final note on Gusecki, though. I mean, I think the, the fact that he hasn't been good would be more of an issue if Miami had more at wide receiver. You know, like they're counting on this undrafted, former undrafted free agent coming off torn ACL to be their second receiver. Then it's Albert Wilson and Alan Hearns behind that. So, you know, I think that there's a chance that even Gusecki, even if Gusecki doesn't play a whole lot better, he still sees good volume just kind of by default there's no one else to throw to. That's basically the only <laughs> thing going in his favor. I agree. Yep. <laughs> Who I like. I really like Matt Breida at his price. Uh, we mentioned the passing two running backs in Chan Gailey's recent history. His past four offenses have thrown more than 20% of their targets at running backs. 77 plus total catches for the top two running backs on each of those four teams. 13 running backs in the NFL caught 50-plus balls last year. 16 did so the year before, 14 in 2017. Every running back in that span with 50-plus catches finished top 40 in PPR points. Only one, and it was James White back in 2017, finished outside the top 30. He only had 43 carries that season, so that's going to happen. I think Matt Breida looks like a decent to good bet for 50 receptions this year. I really like his PPR floor and ceiling better than Jordan Howard in their situation this year. I don't know if I'd say I'm expecting 50 catches. I think that that is a pretty high bar, but it's definitely within his range of outcomes. You know, we, we haven't projected for 34 catches right now, but he still comes in 34th among running backs and PPR points in our ranking. So I definitely think he's a value. Um, so Brady is a guy I've been drafting, you know, in the eighth, ninth round. And then I, again, I still think Jordan Howard is a potential value too, just, just based on rushing volume alone, even if he's not going to do a whole lot in the passing game. I think Burita has the volume case to be made for him better than Mike Jasucki because Matt Burita is actually a good football player. Don't argue with any of that. On the who I don't side, I guess who I don't like among Dolphins. <laughs> I, I would be on board with taking a shot on Mike Jasucki if he were going in Jack Doyle, Blake Jarwin range in yep. ADP. At, at tight end 12, there are at least seven players behind him that I legitimately like straight up versus Mike Jasucki. Yep, I'm with you there. I mean, I, I almost wish I could get a piece of him just because, I, again, I do think there's a chance he, you know, gets 80, 90 targets again this season. But at tight end 12, I'm just, I, I can't. If he gets 80 or 90 targets this year, then it is bad news for everybody else in that offense because it means a lot of guys suffered devastating injuries. This is the Dolphins we're talking about. It's not like it's, you know, uh, it's not like they're stocked full of talent. <laughs> They've got better guys than them. But we'll move on to the Patriots. And there are no relevant coaching changes. So not much has changed outside of quarterback with New England. Joe Judge, who coached wide receivers and special teams before leaving for the Giants head job, is gone. Uh, we'll see if losing Joe Judge crushes the Patriots. I kind of doubt it, though. Josh McDaniels has been back in the offensive coordinator position since 2012. Bill Belichick has been the head guy since 2000, you know, the head coach and the de facto GM. So things are going to look pretty much the same from the coaching standpoint in New England. Yeah, and I'm just super interested to see what this offense looks like. Obviously, you know, the first time in, what, like 15 years without Tom Brady. The run-pass split is going to be interesting. The Patriots have been sub-60% pass rate in seven of the eight years since Josh McDaniels returned as the OC. They've been under 56% pass two of the past four years. Of course, pass rate tends to be capped when you're winning. So if you, the more that you're ahead of your opponent, the more games you're winning, usually the less often you're going to throw, you're going to be running to run out the clock. This team has gone 11 and 5 or better for 10 straight seasons. It has gone 10 or 10 and 6 or better 
every year since 2002. It's had one losing season under Bill Belichick ever, and that was his first at the helm. So my questions are, do they run more to support Jared Stidham? Do they pass more because they are now trailing more games than they're used to without Tom Brady around and with, you know, other deteriorating talent levels on offense? Does the offense run fewer plays in general? I mean, the Patriots have been toward the top of the league in total play volume for most of Tom Brady's time. 2010 was the last time that they were not high in that category, talking about total plays. I projected the Patriots at 58% pass, 42% run for this season. Those are the averages since Josh McDaniels returned. You know, it's just a guess though. We'll see. Yeah, I think those are fair projections because I, I, I do think New England's going to try to run the ball as much as they can. I also think they're going to win fewer games this season, which has, as you said, impacts run pass blood. I think the last I checked, the Vegas over-under win total for the Patriots is at, I think it was eight and a half. You know, that, that's a pretty big drop from where they've been, you know, basically since Tom Brady took over a starter. So that, that is definitely going to impact their ability to run it maybe as much as they, they want to run it. QB notes, Jarrett Stidham looks like the guy, 63.6% completion rate, 8.1 yards per pass attempt, and a 4.9% touchdown rate for his career in college. He's not fast. He's not much of a runner. He doesn't have an impressive pass catching core. I don't have any idea how good a quarterback Stidham is going to be, but I don't see a reason to bet on him for 2020 fantasy. Yeah, I think that's the right take from a fantasy perspective. I mean, I I think there's a chance that Jarrett Stidham ends up being a a good NFL starter. I mean, he did have a nice first season at Auburn, 66.5% completion rate, 8.5 yards per attempt, you know, against SEC defenses. Took a step back in 2018, ended up being what I think was a fourth round pick of the Patriots a couple of years ago. Um, But he was also pretty good in the preseason last year, 68% completion rate, 8.1 yards per attempt, four touchdowns, one interception. Um, He was 12th in PFF's passing grades among 39 quarterbacks with 50 plus dropbacks last preseason. So there's some reason for optimism here, but like you said, I don't think it matters because, you know, even, you know, even Tom Brady and yeah, he's not an elite quarterback anymore, but I, you know, I, I I don't think Stidham's going to prove to be like a major upgrade over Brady this season. And Tom Brady with, basically the same group of pass catchers was 20th among quarterbacks in fantasy points per game. So I I just don't see Stidham's ceiling extending any higher than that. And we know Bill Belichick can't evaluate wide receivers, but I think in general uh, elsewhere, if we see Bill Belichick not feel like he needs to get anything else besides Brian Hoyer as insurance behind Jared Stidham, you know, it's reason to at least believe that Jared Stidham has a chance to, to be decent. Definitely. Running back notes, the Patriots have ranked top six in running back rushing attempts for four straight seasons. What do you think of this running back core heading into the the post-Brady world? Yeah, it, it's it's funny with the Patriots because we can rarely rely on like a single running back in this backfield from week to week, but the backfield in general has been super productive for a long time. The Patriots have finished top 12 in rushing touchdowns in 16 straight seasons. They've been top six in rushing touchdowns in 11 of those last 16 seasons. So like there, there's going to be fantasy value here. It's just figuring out where it's going to come from. You know, I think Sonny Michelle will at least head to training camp as the favorite for lead ball carrying duties. Not really much good we can take from his 2019 season. I mean, he, he got the volume. He was ninth in the league with 247 carries, but 
Um, Efficiency-wise, he was just horrible. 3.7 yards per carry. Um, He was 39th in elusive rating among 45 running backs with 100-plus carries. He was 33rd among those 45 in PFF's rushing grades. And as usual, he didn't do anything in the passing game. Um, Just 12 catches on 20 targets for Sony Michelle last year. And then I think what makes this backfield more interesting is that Michelle had foot surgery in May. Um, If that keeps him sidelined for the start of training camp into August. I think that's going to give Damian Harris a chance to carve out a bigger role this season. Yeah, already a guy with knee stuff to worry about. Now he's got the foot surgery, so that's certainly going to make everybody apprehensive. Sonny Michelle might be hurt more than anybody else by losing Tom Brady, too. Through his two seasons, Sonny Michelle has averaged 17.6 carries in wins, just 11.7 carries in losses. I mean, if the Patriots are trying to... Help out Jared Stidham in his first year starting. I would think that it would be a good idea to try not to telegraph what they're doing to the defense as much as having Sonny Michelle back there does tell the defense that a run is coming and having James White back there says that a pass is probably coming. It's funny too, because Michelle was like a decent pass catcher at Georgia and he seems like a guy who could do it. And you think Bill Belichick would be smarter than to you know, just make this guy almost a pure ball carrying running back. We've seen it long enough from the show now that I don't think we can, you know, safely project any type of increase in his pass catching role. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing telling us right now that we should expect a lot more receiving to come from Sonny Michelle this year. There were, there was talk last off season about how they were trying to work him more into the passing game and it didn't happen once the regular season rolled around. So I think we have to head into this season, not expecting it, especially with the foot issue, James White, as I mentioned, has been the passing down guy for a while now. He finished the past two seasons seventh and then 19th among running backs in PPR scoring. I've talked him up on the show before. 7.0 targets per game over the past two years. Among running backs, only Christian McCaffrey has more. I mean, White's 123 targets in 2018 certainly drove that number up. But he's a good bet for target volume. And I think in a situation this year that should be favorable for his target volume. Yeah, so I mean, White's... You know, RB7 finished in 2018. I think that's like even higher than his ceiling gets this year because you know, he did have yeah. all those targets. He scored a career high 12 touchdowns that year. His his PPR finishes in his other three most recent seasons, 19th, 38th, 26th. I think that's kind of where he settles in that range this season. He saw about 15% of the Patriots targets last year. I think that's definitely an attainable number this season. My concern is that the Patriots did rank fifth league-wide with 620 pass attempts last year. I think that number's coming down a bit, which which will hurt White's targets, obviously, a little bit. But he's not a guy I'm excited about, but I also can't argue against him at his current ADP. Yeah, I wouldn't say excited either, and I agree that the 19th place finish last year is more like his PPR ceiling. Rex Burkhead might be the most interesting total package here, I think. Right now, he might be the best bet to not telegraph offensive intentions among Patriots running backs. They did throw on 68% of Rex Burkhead's offensive snaps last year, but that was up from 55% the year before, 64% in 2017. So uh, not quite as leaning either way as James White or um, Sony Michelle over the past two years. Rex Burkhead is ranked third among Patriots in carries and second among the Patriots running backs in targets for two straight seasons. Even while losing 11 games to injury, he has averaged six carries and 2.3 receptions per game, so 8.3 touches per game since arriving in New England, and 1.1 red zone touches per contest. So they're willing to give Rex Burkhead the ball in all sorts of situations. Not a ton of touches, but he'll get the ball at all levels of the field and be involved. Burkhead actually had four 
weeks last year where he was a top 24 half PPR running back. So you know, he had some useful weeks. Um, so I, I do think if you're super late in a basketball draft, he, he makes sense as a guy as your, uh, your sixth or seventh running back or whatever it would be. He's not a guy I'm probably going to be interested in once we get into lineup setting drafts. Um, I, I don't think it's really in his range of outcomes to you know become – anything close to a consistent part of this Patriots backfield. It's just, I mean, we, we've, he's, he's been in New England too long. It just hasn't happened. Even when he does get touches, it seems like he gets hurt. So I, I think he's best ball only for me. I'm still, I think I'm more interested in Damian Harris than Rex Burkhead. Um, I, I wish we had seen something from Harris last year. He played only five snaps, finished the season with four carries, but Patriots did spend a third round pick on him just a year ago. Um, I thought he was a pretty nice prospect coming out of Alabama has, lead back size at 5'10", 216 pounds. Harris was the number one running back recruit in the, in the 2015 class. Um, he led loaded Alabama backfields in rushing each of his final three seasons, averaged 6.4 yards per carry for his college career, also caught 52 balls across his four college seasons. So and we talk about a back that won't telegraph what New England's doing. I think Harris at least has the potential to be that where he can contribute both on the ground and in the passing game. And again, I think Sonny Michelle's foot injury does open up the door a little bit more for, for Harris to you know, maybe step into that lead role this season. Harris is the guy for me that I'm not interested in unless we get to training camp and he's like working ahead of Sonny Michelle or Sonny Michelle's just not on the field. Because if everybody's active, I just don't see a path. I mean, the big difference between Harris and Burkhead is that Burkhead has a special teams role, and that's why Harris was nothing last year. I mean, if he was at least a special teamer along the lines of Burkhead or Brandon Bolden, then we would have seen him on the active roster for more than just the two games. I think it was that he was in there. So I'm going to need to see some reason this summer for me to pay any attention. I think there, I I agree. He's an upside guy long-term, but I don't see it for 2020 if Michelle's around. I mean, Harris is still running back 62 in ADP. If we're, if we're down in that territory, I, I think he has some pretty intriguing upside. Well, we'll talk about those guys again in a few minutes. Pass catcher notes, what you got to lead off that section? Julian Edelman, obviously, I think is still the best bet to lead this team in targets this season. Um, you know, he, he he was awesome last year. Um, 100 catches, 153 targets, a career high in receiving yards. Um, he had 1,117 receiving yards, finished PPR wide receiver eight. He was even 17th in non-PPR leagues. Edelman also tied for the fifth most top 36 half PPR weeks last year with 11 of them. All that said, I mean, it's it's tough to get excited about him this year just for starters with the quarterback change. Um, it, it'll be, you know, Edelman's first really significant action without Tom Brady since, you know, Edelman entered the league. Um, he's also 34 years old. He also has an injury history. So even at his depressed price tag, you know, I think Edelman's like wide receiver 36 and ADP. Um, just not a guy I can get excited to draft. Yeah, I'm not too interested right now when we're drafting for best ball teams because I don't think there's a whole lot of week-to-week upside. And there are other guys even in that range that you can get solid floors from. Six straight years, though, six of six-plus catches per game. I think he's still well set up to lead this team, potentially dominate in targets again. So once we get into lineup setting, I am a little worried that I might have Julian Edelman a little too low. I'm not going to get excited like you said, at any point, but I mean, he could certainly catch 85 plus passes again in this situation and maybe have upside into a hundred or, you know, around the same range as last year. Right. It's, it's just hard to quantify what his rapport with Tom Brady has meant to his production. But, it, you know, if he does get 120 targets, even which, you know, it would be 30 fewer than he saw last year, if he gets 120 targets, he's 
probably going to beat where he is in ADP right now. Nikhil Harry, of course, was the first-round pick last year, missed half of his debut season with an ankle injury. Uh, even after he returned, he never topped three catches in a game or reached 30 yards. Nikhil Harry was a winner in breakout age and market shares in college heading into the league last year, so it made him a darling of dynasty analysts. What do you got on Nikhil Harry? Yeah, I mean, I'm still optimistic about Harry as a, as a player in like long term. Um, like you said, he he had a really nice prospect profile. Um, you know, last year he was a 21 year old rookie. You know, he was on the younger side. Um, he was you know learning an offense that we've seen receivers struggle in early on. Um, Harry had the August ankle injury that landed him on IR, so he missed a bunch of practice time. So he was sort of in a tough spot. Um, I'm not giving up on him at the same time, unless he can overtake Julian Edelman as the number one target in this passing game. Uh, I don't see a ton of upside just because I don't expect this to be you know, a passing game that supports two high-end fantasy options. Yeah, he's another one of those guys that I can't tell you he's a bad pick in the range where he's going, but I, I can't say that I'm very interested. It is interesting that Harry had six carries last year over his final four games. Um, I'm, I'm interested to see if that carries over, if the, the Pats look to you know give him a carry every so often. We, we've seen how that can help receivers like Robert Woods, a little added value with rushing production. Yeah, maybe he can be Tavon Austin. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Mohamed Sanu is somehow an even less dynamic Julian Edelman here. Eight yards per catch with the Patriots last year, 112th among wide receivers in A dot, according to PFF last season. Uh, Sanu actually finished 1.3 yards short of Julian Edelman's A dot, which is already you know a, a category that he skews short in. I don't think there's a, a reason to draft Mohamed Sanu at any point. I mean, I'd like I'd rather draft Cole Beasley than Mohamed Sanu. Yeah, I'm with you there. Still can't believe the Patriots gave up a second round pick for this guy. Um, <laughs> I mean, in Sanu's defense, he did suffer what was what was reported as a high ankle sprain in November. He ended up only missing one game, but then he, he was, you know, basically useless upon his return. So I, I think it's safe to assume he wasn't 100%. That said, um, you know, again, just in this offense, a secondary option in the passing game isn't someone I'm interested in drafting. I think the biggest knock on Nikhil Harry's outlook might be the fact that Bill Belichick drafted him. Yeah, really. Yep. Just the way that he evaluates wide receivers. I mean, who are the guys that have really hit for them? It's Julian Edelman, obviously, who came out of nowhere. It was a quarterback in college, was a seventh-round pick. Then it was Wes Welker, who they saw with the Dolphins and traded for. Randy Moss, who you don't have to be a film grinder to know that Randy Moss is pretty good. I mean, the the, the record goes back pretty far on this one. Yeah, Bethel Johnson comes to mind. Yeah, God. Uh, tight ends for these Patriots. I think either Devin Asiasi or Dalton Keene could be interesting as a deep sleeper if they were the only one that the team drafted at the position. Because they were both drafted so far together, though, I think they're non-factors for 2020 fantasy. Yeah, off my radar for now. I mean, you know, the, the guys will we'll monitor once the season starts and maybe they become spot start options, but... I'm not interested in either guy in best ball drafts right now. Who I like, James White, who I mentioned before, and Rex Burkhead, who I said previously. James White, RB35, it's not hard for him to offer value at that level. Rex Burkhead is RB76. So, I mean, if the guy scores four touchdowns this season, uh, he's a huge producer at RB76 price tag. Yep, um, I'll take both those guys, and I'm going to add Damian Harris again to the mix at at running back 62. I think um, his ceiling for that range is better than you know, probably anyone going in that territory. Um, and then Nikhil Harry, he's wide receiver 60. Like, I mean, again, 
I don't think he's going to get enough volume in this offense to be someone we can count on as like a weekly starter this season. But there is a chance. I mean, former first round pick, a guy we really liked. Maybe he's just good enough where he, you know, can get 90 to 100 targets this season. And that would be enough to make him a pretty big value at his wide receiver 60 ADP. For me, Damian Harris is a better target in a lineup setting league where I can drop him if we get three weeks into the season and he doesn't have a role than he is in best ball. Because I think that the issue with drafting him, even at the low cost in best ball, is that there's definitely a chance that he just offers nothing this year and he remains uh, buried in this backfield. And then you've burned a roster spot that could have been, you know, a productive third tight end or, you know, whatever you're not getting at that spot. Yeah, that's that's fair. On to the Jets, our final team in this division. Relevant coaching changes, nothing here. I mean, the head coach, Adam Gase, offensive coordinator, Dowell Loggins, and defensive coordinator, Greg Williams, all returned from last year. Here are Adam Gase's impressive offenses to date. Let's start him back with the Broncos. 2013, he was the coordinator. First in yards, first in points. 2014 Broncos, fourth in yards, second in points. Those, of course, were Peyton Manning's last two good years of football. 2015 coordinator with the Bears was Adam Gase. 21st in yards, 23rd in points. Right in line with what the team did the year before. Then he took over as the Dolphins head coach in 2016. They finished 24th in yards, 17th in points. Both of those were up a little bit from where the team had been in 2015. So good for him there. But then 2017 Dolphins, 28th in points, 25th in yards. The 2018 Dolphins were 26th in points, 31st in yards. And then last year's Jets, his first team there, 32nd in the league in yards, 31st in points. Both of those down versus the already unimpressive Jets of 2018. Adam Gase owes Peyton Manning so much money. Adam Gase (laughs) would be like a a D3 quarterback coach if it wasn't for those two years in Denver with Manning. And and Gase is the reason it's tough to get excited about this Jets offense from a fantasy perspective. I absolutely agree. On the run-pass split, he has averaged a 58.5% pass rate over his seven seasons as a head coach or an offensive coordinator. Just two years of 60-plus percent pass. One of those was the 2013 Broncos with Peyton's then-record 55 touchdown passes. Uh, I project them for just short of 60%, just like last year. I don't expect the Jets to be terrific, so I think that will drive up the passing a little bit. The other thing here that hurts fantasy value a little bit at least is we've seen four straight seasons of fewer than a thousand total plays for Adam Gates offenses. He's averaging 935 and a half plays over that span. So that's bad news for the guys that you're hoping will collect volume on this offense. Yeah. Slow paced offense doesn't help. Um, I I remember talking in August last year, I think it was on the podcast with Dwayne McFarland about the Jets potentially going up tempo this season and it did not happen. So I'm not going to get coaxed into that again this summer. Even if we hear anything, um, I expect this to be one of the slower paced offenses in the NFL. At QB, Jared, can you give me any reason why I should pay attention to Sam Darnold higher than the, any starting QB makes sense range? No. And it's, it's not Sam Darnold's fault. Again, I blame Adam Gase for this because I, I do, I, I still believe in Sam Darnold and, you know, any breakout from him is going to have to wait until he, he gets away from Adam Gase. And obviously wasn't pretty last year. And the fact that he got mono, you know, early in the season definitely had something to do with that, I'm sure. Um, but even, even when he returned from that, he wasn't very good. He was just quarterback 17 in fantasy points over the final 12 games of the season. The Jets did improve the O-line on paper this season. They spent a first-round pick on Mekhi Becton. They added center Connor McGovern. They added a couple other O-linemen in free agency, Greg Van Roten and, and George Fant. But it's still, you know, I think, at best an average O-line. And the pass-catching core, maybe it's a bit better 
adding Denzel Mims in the draft, getting Chris Herndon back. They swapped out Robbie Anderson for Rashad Perriman. I think that's a wash at best. So maybe it's a bit better of a pass catching core, but I don't think it's a pass catching core that's really going to elevate Sam Darnold to quarterback one territory. Yeah, it's possible that they're better in both of those areas. It's also possible that they're not better in both of those areas. Uh, Sam Darnold reached 20 fantasy points just five times all last season. Only twice did he crack that number in consecutive outings. He rated solidly as a passer late last season, according to PFF, but nothing special at any point yet. So there's just nothing here to put your finger on and say, this is why I'm excited about Sam Darnold, especially for fantasy purposes. He, uh, he still should be just fine as a quarterback going forward, and maybe he'll be much more than fine at some point. But QB 26 and June ADP, I think that's where he belongs. I agree. Um, I I would look into buying him in Dynasty, but I I don't think he's going to be much for a redraft asset. Running back notes, Le'Veon Bell's 3.2 yards per carry ranked 46th among 47 qualifiers last season. Among the top 50 PPR backs, he ranked 48th in fantasy points per touch. He ranked 44th. Among 45 qualifiers and football outsiders rushing DVOA ahead of only Peyton Barber in that category, Le'Veon Bell did fare decently in PFF's elusive rating uh, and was just below the middle of position in PFF's yards per route run. What do you think of Le'Veon Bell? Yeah, so I was looking into that too. You know, who, whose fault was it for such an inefficient season? Was it Bell's fault or was the is, was it the Jets' offense, the O-line's fault? I, I think it was more the O-line. You know, like you mentioned, Bell was sort of middle of the pack in those PFF stats, yards after contact per attempt, elusive rating, PFF rushing grade. Um, the Jets O-line was 30th in PFF's run blocking grades. The Jets finished 31st in football outsiders adjusted line yards. Le'Veon Bell was 45th among 46 qualifiers in yards before contact per attempt, which again is more of a measure of the blocking in front of them. So I don't think Bell's totally washed yet. I also think it's you know not smart to, think he's going to return to you know the the elite levels he was at with the Steelers the question is you know is he going to get the same type of volume he did last year because even though he was a so inefficient last year he still finished 16th among running backs and PPR points um, he had 10 top 24 half PPR weeks that was 10th most among running backs so you know he, he still at least gave you a floor last year because of the volume but Adam Gates has made it pretty clear that you know he didn't really want Le'Veon Bell on his team to begin with I don't think he wants to give him that type of volume this season. And then they go and add Frank Gore, who, you know, still even at uh, 37 years old now, he gets touches no matter where he goes, you know, Miami, Buffalo, he's still sort of in the mix. So that's my concern with Bell is that um, he's not, he's not going to get that massive volume that he saw last year. Adam Gase says that the Jets helped Le'Veon Bell by upgrading the offensive line and acquiring some receivers that will take defenders out of the box. We'll see how true that ends up being. I do think that the fact that the the additions they made to the backfield were signing 37-year-old Frank Gore and drafting LaMichael Pirine in round four, those I think are good additions if you are a Le'Veon Bell believer and you think that he's going to deliver this season. I mean, like I said, Gore's old. Pirine, I thought, was a fine prospect, but doesn't look like anything special. He was the 12th running back off the board in the draft. Did go ahead of Anthony McFarlane Jr., DJ Dallas, not much behind him though. And uh, just after Joshua Kelly. So tough to say whether they would have taken somebody else if they'd been on the board, but you know, again, it's a fine spot for Le'Veon Bell. If you're banking on the similar volume to last year, he's probably not going to be quite as bad as he was last year when they played without Sam Darnold for a few games, but it's not generally a good look at this point to bet on an old running back. And I know he's not old in real life terms, but old by running back standards, bouncing back from poor efficiency. And it certainly doesn't look like a good bet 
to bet on an Adam Gase offense. I wish that Le'Veon Bell were going earlier in ADP so I could avoid him completely. If he's on the board in round four, though, I certainly cannot make an argument against him in that range. Yeah, running back 21 in ADP. And I mean, there is certainly a chance that Bell gets 300 touches this season and you know, getting a 300 touch running back in the fourth round, you know, 21st running back off the board. That, that's that's more likely than not a good bat and someone who's, who's going to finish higher than that. Pass catcher notes, Jamison Crowder drew 44 more targets than any other returning Jets player last season. Of course, that's partly because Robbie Anderson's gone. Le'Veon Bell was the only guy within 81 of Jamison Crowder's targets among Jets that are returning to this year's team. Crowder drew 23.9% target share last season. That ranked ninth among all wide receivers. As I mentioned, Robbie Anderson's gone. Rashad Perriman arrived to replace him on just a one-year deal, though. And then Denzel Mims arrived in round two. Uh, He's an intriguing talent and somebody that we enjoyed heading into the NFL draft. There's also been some research, though, by Rich Rebar, among others, that players who do not leave, or wide receivers specifically, who do not leave after their third year of college, who don't enter the draft early, have not been as productive as those who do. And, you know, the question is exactly why. Maybe it's because the guys who stick around for all four years aren't as good. But, you know, that's something out there to maybe wonder about Mims's ultimate outlook. Yeah, and I do think Mims is a boomer bust type of guy, um, especially coming from that Baylor offense. And, I, you know, it's I don't see him as a guy who's going to come right in and play a huge role in the passing game, even though there is opportunity. And, you know, I do think he'll at least be the number three wide receiver here. But I, I think Jamison Crowder, is a pretty good bet to lead the team in targets this season. Um, it, it also helps him that he has some rapport with Sam Darnold, where Rashad Perriman and Denzel Mims obviously don't, and it's an offseason where these guys are getting less practice time together. Um, and Crowder, if you just look at week six on last year after Sam Darnold returned from Mono, Crowder ranked 12th among wide receivers in targets over that span, 91 targets. He was 15th among wide receivers in PPR points, so – you know, that's the type of ceiling he's bringing with a healthy Sam Darnold this season. I, I really think he could see a similar share of the targets this season as he did last year. Yeah, I definitely do not think it's out of the question for Jamison Crowder to have the kind of season that Julian Edelman did last year and even get into wide receiver one range in the final PPR rankings. Yeah, definitely possible. Rashad Perriman finished 2019 with three straight 100-plus yard games. He did pick it up a little bit in 2018 with Cleveland, and then, of course, last year with the Bucks. Of course, neither of those teams bothered to try keeping him around. Mm-hmm. Perriman's now on, I believe, his third straight one-year deal, despite hitting free agency this offseason, ahead of his 27th birthday. He won't turn 27 until early September. So, honestly... I'm not sure what to make of this guy. It seems like there's upside. It seems like there's a chance that he's coming around. But when the entire league is like, eh, we're not that excited about you, it makes me wonder. Yeah, it makes me wonder too. And again, this is like, when we get into this range of player, like this is where it's like, it's an Adam Gase offense. How many fantasy factors can there really be on this team? I mean, I do expect Rashad Perriman to be at least the number two wide receiver here. I think he's going to finish with more targets than Denzel Mims this season. And there is opportunity. Robbie Anderson and Demarius Thomas leave behind 154 targets from a year ago. So, you know, there, there's a path to 100 targets for Perriman this season. Um, you know, former first-round pick, has the size, speed. He was, as you mentioned, good down the stretch last year in a bigger role in Tampa Bay. But it's just, you know, Adam Gase is preventing me from being more excited about Rashad Perriman. 
Yeah, I was hoping that Brashad Perriman was going to be like wide receiver 42 in ADP so that I could just avoid him altogether. He's right now wide receiver 57 in June ADP. So, I mean, at that point, you don't even need to make a strong case for a player. You just take him because he's starting for somebody and he's fast. He's going to score touchdowns at some point. Right, especially in best ball. He is the type of player who can give us some spike weeks. Denzel Mims talked about there's some exciting upside long-term. Don't want to overinvest, especially after he lasted into round two in the NFL draft. Should we talk more about Mims or move on to tight ends? Hey, let's talk about Chris Herndon. Why don't you hit us with him? It was obviously a lost season last year. It opened with a four-game suspension, then hamstring and rib injuries limited him to just one game, I believe it was, after that. So completely off the radar. But you go back to 2018, Herndon caught 39 balls for 502 yards and four touchdowns as a rookie tight end with a rookie quarterback in Sam Darnold. It was actually the 10th most PPR points scored by a rookie tight end over the past 10 seasons. Um, Herndon just ahead of Noah Fant and Mark Andrews on that list. So he's an intriguing guy. Another case, though, where it's, you know, it's Adam Gase sort of has me tapping the brakes a bit on Chris Herndon. But where he's going in drafts, I mean, he's deep into tight end two territory. He is a guy who definitely, I think, has the upside to, to be a big value there. The other factor working against Chris Herndon, I think, is Ryan Griffin. Fifth among Jets in receptions per game last year. He did get a three-year contract extension in November, which was near the end of a span that found him averaging four catches, 44.3 yards, and .7 touchdowns per game across six games. I don't think Ryan Griffin, you know, is an exciting talent. I don't think he's a a scary challenger in terms of uh, keeping Chris Herndon on the sideline, but there's only so much going around in this offense that really doesn't excite anybody. And if anything that that Ryan Griffin takes away from Chris Herndon just puts him farther from relevance for me. Yeah. See Griffin to me is almost like more of a Mark in Herndon's favor. It's like if, if Ryan Griffin could do that, with the Jets over you know the second half of last season, I think I think Herndon a uh, a better player. You know, I'm comfortable saying he he's a better player than Ryan Griffin. I think he he has upside to do even more. Yeah, I, I guess I can't argue too much with that. Who I like, not pumped about anyone here, but uh, I think it sounds like we agree on Jamison Crowder yeah. and then maybe Brashad Perriman to a lesser degree. I will definitely take Crowder first among Jets, and I would call him the greatest upside candidate on the team. Yeah, Crowder, definitely my favorite pick here. He's wide receiver 41 in ADP. You know, we have him ranked five, six spots higher. And I, I, I agree. I think his upside extends at least in the wide receiver two territory. You know, none of the Jets are going high in drafts, and they don't deserve to be, but it also makes them all, you know, at least potential targets if they drop to you know where they are in ADP again Brashad Perriman wide receiver 58 I think is okay Chris Herndon tight end 22 he's a guy I want to get some piece of in FFPC drafts right now even in that range though I'm definitely taking Jace Sternberger ahead of him and uh if I if I reach that level with just one tight end Mm -hmm. then I'm looking at doing something like stacking the Vikings tight ends together Yeah. yeah Irv Smith I have ahead of Chris Herndon, and then Sternberger is right in that territory. That's a case where I you know, want to get some pieces of both guys. Who I don't like is the Jets, and that's <laughs> what makes it tough for me to get excited about any individual player. I don't like Adam Gase. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So I think that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Head over to DraftSharks.com now to see exactly how we project every player we discussed in this show, along with hundreds of other guys. And you can read much more of the why on every player in consideration for your draft. Become a DS Insider now so you can get full access and dominate all of your drafts this summer. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at DraftSharks. Jared is at SmolaDS. I am at ShaufDS. That's S-C-H-A-U-F. For Jared Smola and the rest of the DraftSharks crew, I'm Matt Schauf saying thanks so much for swimming with us.